This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for July 25th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we talk about research funding for people, not projects. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of daily news stories. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. For many scientists, the grinding quest for research dollars seems to never end. The National Institutes of Health is looking to change that for some scientists by granting them no-strings-attached support. I spoke with staff writer Jocelyn Kaiser about people awards at NIH and what it might mean for researchers of all stripes. So the Howard Hughes Medical Institute is one of the largest private funders of biomedical research in the United States. Instead of deciding what to fund based on what the idea is for the project and looking at the details of the proposed research, they look at the researcher himself or herself and her or his track record and decide whether to fund them based not on what they're planning to do, but what they've done in the past. So the news here is that NIH is looking to use this model to fund people, not projects. Can you give us some of the details? So right now, the way the NIH works is most of its funding goes for what people might call project-based grants for um, studying a specific idea, trying to find out specific things over the few years of the grant. But what they're thinking about doing is funding more people based on the Howard Hughes kind of model, where you fund a researcher based on their track record and generally what they want to do, but not because they said they're going to find out, answer some specific question in the next few years by doing certain experiments. Instead, you just let them leave that up to them and go by your confidence based on their track record that they can do what they are saying they're going to do. Have other large federal funders like the NIH taken this approach before? 
So NIH has experimented with it in the last decade or so. They started these awards they call Pioneer Awards that give a researcher with a really outstanding record a lot of money, something like a million dollars a year over five years to work in some research area. But the NIH doesn't look at the specific details of how they're going to do that. They just look at the person and say, this person has shown they can do outstanding research, so we're just going to let them loose and let them pursue this idea without scrutinizing exactly how they say they're going to do it. They must have had some success with the Pioneer Award if they're thinking about expanding this to other areas of NIH. So NIH sponsored a study a couple of years ago by an outside contractor that tried to compare people who'd gotten this Pioneer Award with people who got the more conventional kind of NIH grant, sort of tried to match their characteristics, and they found that the ones who got the Pioneer Award um, were more productive and did more innovative research. Now that NIH is looking to expand this, what other parts might it's a very large organization. So what are some of the parts of it that might might actually follow through? Yeah. Right. The the NIH has 27 institutes and centers and the two institutes that are furthest ahead with this are the National Cancer Institute, which announced its new People Award last month. The second institute is the National Institute of General Medical Sciences. That's known as the Basic Research Institute at NIH. And they are thinking about whether they may want to convert all of their project-based grants to this different kind of people award. What it would mean is all their investigators would kind of give up their project grants and instead get one of these long-term people awards. Looking across all of NIH, is there any estimate of how much money is going to be going to people rather than projects? Well, it's hard for me to answer that question for all of NIH because the other institutes haven't announced their plans yet. But I think that the General Medical Sciences Institute fund something like 10% of all researchers at NIH. So maybe that'd be 10% of NIH's budget. The Cancer Institute is the largest institute, and they potentially could be funding something like 16% of their funding for projects could go to this new mechanism. So it's a lot. It could be maybe 10% of NIH's overall budget, I'm guessing. So when there is any change to how research is funded, there are going to be winners and losers. What might some of the consequences of this shift be for, say, young researchers? So this is something that people are worried about. When you fund people in this way by looking at their track record, the more experienced people are going to do better unless you deliberately tailor it so that someone young and who's only a short way out of a postdoc can also be eligible for those awards. So that's what people worry about, that the young researchers and also the people who are not quite young but kind of mid-career are going to be hurt. So I think that the institutes doing this at NIH, at least general medical sciences for sure, wants to make sure that the young and early career investigators aren't the losers by making sure that they get a certain number of the grants and assessing them in a different way. Is this something that is just more piloting, or do you think it's going to become a permanent part of NIH funding structure? My guess is that it will become a growing part of how NIH funds its researchers. And it's, it's something that's becoming more popular with other outside of the U.S. with other funding agencies, too, like Canada is starting to move in this direction. Jocelyn, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. Jocelyn Kaiser is a staff writer for Science. She writes about funding shifts in this week's issue. Now we have David Grimm, the editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on tracking blue whales. Researchers have been tracking the movements of the world's largest animals, blue whales, using satellites, and the research is beginning to bear fruit. Dave, when did we start tracking these big guys? 
Researchers started looking at them in 1993, and the reason they were curious is nobody hunts blue whales anymore. Some countries hunt other types of whales, but despite the protections that have been put on blue whales, they haven't recovered the same way that other whale species have, and that's been a big mystery. And that's part of the reason researchers started tracking them about two decades ago. They're specifically looking at a population of whales called the North Pacific population. This is about 2,500 individuals. When they decided to follow the whales, one of the reasons was because their population wasn't on the rebound. How did their numbers look overall worldwide? There's about 10,000 of them worldwide. And this study seems to show that blue whales are being killed in ship collisions. How big of a problem is this? Well, that's one of the things the researchers found. They found that the whales that they followed, which is about 171 whales, that every summer they returned to what are called upwelling zones off Santa Barbara and San Francisco. And these places of the ocean produce masses of krill, which the whales rely on for their diet. But these same areas are also crossed by major shipping lanes. And the researchers noted that in the past there's been a lot of incidents of whales being struck and often killed by ships in this area. And they sort of put two and two together, and that leads them to believe that one of the big reasons these whale populations have not recovered is that a lot of them are being hit by ships. And they're actually able to examine the bodies of some of these whales. Yeah, for example, in 2007, there were at least five blue whales killed by ship strikes near California's Channel Islands. One of the researchers on the study actually looked at one of these deceased whales, and she said it had this huge hematoma. It was clearly from a massive blunt force trauma, the kind that, that would be inflicted by a ship. These are 100-foot-long mammals running into ships. This can't be good for the ships either. Is there an option to move them out of the way? There's actually been efforts in the past, successful efforts, for example, um, in the Bay of Fundy off the Atlantic coast of North America. Channels were actually moved so that the ships wouldn't come into contact with the whales. And in that case, it seemed to actually reduce the ship strikes by about 80%. So in this new study, the researchers are actually arguing for changing shipping lanes off the Channel Islands and also off San Francisco as a way to reduce whale deaths there. Next up, we have a story on cancer rates. Since the 1970s, biologists have been wondering, why do small animals like mice and rats get cancer so much more often than large animals like people? The answer may well be how many viral genomes have integrated into their DNA. So Dave, how does this work? What kind of viruses are these? And what are they doing in their host genomes? Well, these are called endogenous retroviruses, or ERVs. And part of their life cycle involves them integrating into the host DNA. Now, obviously, that's going to cause some problems. A lot of cancers are actually spurred by DNA basically getting mucked up. And that's sometimes what you have happen when a virus like this integrates into the DNA. The writer brings in this idea that you have more cells and you live longer as a person than a mouse. So it seems like a larger animal would be more susceptible to viruses. How do the numbers line up between, say, how many viruses are integrated into people versus into mice? It's really the opposite of what you'd expect. Larger animals, such as humans, even dolphins, have far fewer of these ERVs in their genomes than do smaller animals like mice. For example, mice have more than three thousand of these viral sequences in their cells, according to this new study, whereas dolphins have just 55, humans have about 348. 
could there be an evolutionary explanation for this? Why are larger animals fending off these viruses better than smaller animals? Well, that seems to be the explanation for this paradox, also known as Pito's paradox, after the researcher that first observed it. But the idea would be that larger animals need to live longer, larger animals tend to reproduce later, and if they're getting killed off by these viruses early in their life cycle, then evolutionarily that's not great. So from an evolutionary perspective, they need to find a way to fight off these viruses much more aggressively than potentially smaller animals that reproduce faster and younger. And that may be why humans, dolphins, and the larger animals have a lot less of these ERVs and potentially lower rates of cancer as well. But humans still do get cancer. How does this information help with human health? Well, it just gives us another thing to look for when it comes to figuring out what some of the causes of cancer are. And this is obviously because it's such a big cancer cause and some of these other animals could be an important factor for people to look at for humans as well. Lastly, we have an update on a recent story. Two weeks ago, we talked about an uncontacted tribe in Brazil that actually made voluntary contact with the outside world. And this week, we have an update on their status. Right, Dave? Right, Sarah. And one of the things we talked about a couple of weeks ago was this big fear that when these villagers came in contact with the outside world, that they would contract uh, potentially fatal diseases. And unfortunately, that looks like that may have happened. In uh, a new development, researchers have found that a few of the individuals that did make contact with the outside world appear to have come down with influenza. Now, influenza isn't that bad for the rest of us. It's just the flu, and most of us can fight that off. But these are people that have absolutely no exposure to this virus. And when similar things have happened in the past with other tribes, it's been a tragic situation. This was actually a really big fear going into this. Were there any of the tribes people vaccinated? They were vaccinated after they came in contact with some of the government officials from Brazil. The problem is the tribe disappeared back into the forest shortly after they were vaccinated. And the concern is that they could still potentially spread the virus to their fellow tribespeople. There's a possibility they'll bring the infection back to their village. Do we know much about why they left and, and what their village was like? We don't know a whole lot, though it's possible they were fleeing illegal loggers, cocaine traffickers. There's a lot of nefarious activity happening in this part of the world. And what happens is when these loggers or these drug dealers come in, they tend to attack the villagers. So what are the next steps here? Are they going to try to follow up with the village, vaccinate more people? What are they going to do? Well, this is still a developing story, and we hope to have another update on the site this week. Okay, so what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a slideshow about Earth's vanishing animals. Also a story about how feathers were more widespread among dinosaurs than we thought. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got an item about why NASA wants to take a closer look at Jupiter's icy moon Europa. Also a story about how to make the food pyramid more environmentally friendly. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. 
On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.